0: Our scripture today comes from Luke 5. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks? Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, with awe saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. <laughs> the word of the Lord. Be to God. Yeah, I am sorry. <laughs> Join me in prayer, please. Dear Lord, please give Pastor Andrew the words you won't proclaim. Please make our hearts soft and tender so that we can receive the message which you do give him. And may this sermon change us so that when others see us, they will see you to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated.
1: I love it when other people make mistakes up here. I don't feel so alone because I know I make plenty. I'm a little confused by this yellow stuff that's outside. I think it's sunshine. <laughs> Haven't seen that in a while. Uh, this week uh, was a week of pain. Uh, we've had national pain. This impeachment trial uh, reminds us of the pain that we. Experience As a nation, there's been uh, worldwide pain. Uh, I certainly see that in, in China and uh, the coronavirus and how people have, have been dying from that and no real end in sight. We're wondering about what's going on there. I know that uh, many of you have personal pain. I talked to a couple people who said, my loved one died uh, this week. Share some of that a little bit later on. And, um, you know, others of you are walking alongside people who have diagnoses or are struggling with relational things, divorce. I, there's just so much pain. Uh, reminded of that, of course, last week, Sunday, when that helicopter crashed into the hillside in, in California been all over the news cycles, of course, because Kobe Bryant was a part of that, uh, reminder of the pain that can come in an instant, I mean, when we're not thinking about it, when there's so much that is there. And then there's just people that, that live in pain hev- every day, sometimes because of their own making. Uh, I happened to catch uh, Demi Lovato. And, and her, her wail, her cry at the Grammys uh, last week, Sunday night, again, I mean, she's been a very troubled young woman dealing with uh, addictions and eating disorders and all sorts of things that's been open and been in the, the, the news. She came and she, she sang a song that she had recently Uh, composed, had a hard time actually getting through uh, the song at the Grammys because it was so raw. Here's what she said, I tried to talk to my piano, I tried to talk to my guitar, talk to my imagination, confided into alcohol. I tried and I tried and I tried some more, told secrets till my voice was sore, tired of empty conversation because no one hears me anymore. A hundred million stories, a hundred million songs. I feel so stupid when I sing. Nobody's listening to me. Nobody's listening. I talk to shooting stars, but they always get it wrong. I feel stupid when I pray. So why am I praying anyway if nobody's listening? Anyone? Please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone, anyone, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. There is just such a depth of pain that is in our world. Uh, no matter where you go in whatever quarter of life, whether you are rich or poor, uh, it doesn't matter uh, whether you are successful or, I mean, there's just so much pain because we live in a broken world and, and we're crying out, is, is there anyone? Now Demi seems to have given up uh, hope that there is anyone actually that is listening to her, either on earth or in heaven. Uh, but we come this morning because we, we believe, or at least we hope, uh, that there is someone who is listening. And I want to introduce you this morning. Uh, to, to Jesus of Nazareth I mean he is the one who is there and is listening we see that in this story Luke 5 we meet a paralyzed man who I'm sure knows his own pain the pain of not only his disability The the pain of ostracization, of lack of telos or purpose in life, all of these things that, that went along with the disability in the first century. This was a man that knew pain, and he needed someone, anyone, to listen to him. He needed someone to see him. He needed someone who could reach in and actually touch him. And could heal him. And into that void we we meet Jesus, the, this one who Luke tells us in verse 17 has the power to heal, this one who we're told in the passage has the authority to forgive sins, the, this one who the Pharisees very clearly, though they have come to test him, they've come with a heavy dose of skepticism, they recognize that he is claiming to be none other than God himself. But not only healing, but also forgiving sins. This is the one that we are introduced to in this passage in Luke chapter 5. And what I want to do today is maybe a little bit different from an outline perspective than we normally do. I just want to walk through the passage uh, and, and highlight five key terms for you for what happens when Jesus is introduced into the situation? Or, as we've been talking about it, what happens when the upper story, things of God, things of belief and faith invade the lower story where we live, you know, the things of the material world where our pain is? What happens, in this case, literally, when the roof is pulled off uh, and heaven descends into the material world. Five things, like I said, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, two fists longer than normal, so I'll I'll try to keep it going uh, through here. The first thing that I want you to see is love. And the first two really are highlighted in the actions of the friends. Uh, We see in in verses 18 and 19 uh, that the friends of this paralyzed man work together to bring this, uh, this man, this, their friend, to Jesus. Uh, they, they care for him. And they've heard that there's a healer in town. They've heard that there is somebody who can reach in and, and change his condition. And so they, they move into action and they say, we are going to do everything in our power to bring this needy one to Jesus. They have such love for their friend. There's not an indifference. There's not an unwillingness to, to face obstacles. There is a love in their heart that says, we are going to do whatever it costs to bring our needy friend into contact with Jesus. This is something that, that we stand and we really marvel at. Uh, there, there must have been something in these folks There is, Jesus calls it faith, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, There was something in them, they had a faith that said, we love our friend, so uh, we are going to bring him to Jesus. You know, we're in a sanctuary this morning uh, with flags from all over the world, and as you'll hear, each one of these flags represents a country that we have a missionary in. Now, why do we do that? Well, because we love the Lord and we we want His name to be proclaimed in, in all the earth. But we also do that because we love people. Uh, we we have uh, we have found Jesus. We we know the healing that He offers us, and so like a beggar who has found bread, we want to show other beggars where they can find bread. We we want to share what we have because we don't want these other folks that we uh, come into contact with on uh, uh, you know throughout our world. We we want them to know Jesus. We love them. We love the Lord. Just like these men are with their friends. They love their friend. They love Jesus. One of the things that is interesting about this passage is that even though it's so many thousands of years ago, it's got similar challenges to our day and age. Uh, Oftentimes when I'm studying, I'll reach out to people to help regularly. I have a group that sort of helps me think through passages. This week I I reached out to Cassandra Wolf, uh, who is uh, part of our community. And uh, she's a young woman that has a vision impairment, has uh, some effects from cerebral palsy. Um, and uh, so she experiences life with a disability. Uh, she also works as an advocate for, for folks with disabilities. So I said, what do, how do you read this text? What are some of the things that stand out to you here? And I, I want to share with you some of the things that she said. But it highlighted for me how important it is not only to go out Uh, in terms of loving people and mission, but be ready to welcome in, uh, into our spaces, into our lives, those who we might ordinarily uh, overlook. Here are some thoughts that Cassandra had, and I trust they will bless you in the same way that they blessed me. Uh, We as Christ followers are invited to promote physical sensory accessibility in the church. One of the things that stands out from, from this passage, from a purely historical and social perspective, people with disabilities are one of the largest minority demographics in the world, and churches are, by and large, still some of the least accessible public facilities. When we expand our thinking about who has a disability to include the elderly who may struggle with mobility, vision, or hearing loss later in life, we recognize that physical accessibility is not just for the people out there who may come to church for the first time, but also includes our covenant community right here. Often, when people with disabilities are asked why they don't go to church, it's cited that the building is inaccessible in one way or another. They aren't hearing the gospel, people aren't brought to Jesus, because they literally cannot get through the door. We as a church can change how we act on this, and it doesn't necessarily need legislation to embolden our resolve to welcome the desperate and the sick. The faithful actions of the men in verse 19 express ingenuity, creativity, and community. I I, I like that, the way she put that together. They are working together to physically break through any barriers that would otherwise prevent the paralytic from access to Jesus. They recognize that the paralytic needs healing, that Jesus has to offer, though they find out it's much more than physical. As a church, again, we are invited to work to remove any barriers, physical or attitudinal, that would prevent others from accessing the true hope and the healing that Jesus has to offer. Now, I I would not have been able to say anything like that uh, on my own, so I'm grateful for those that have eyes to see in ways that I don't. And I think it's spot on. I, I, I think about my own heart, my own attitudes, how willing I am to go out in support of missions. But sometimes how unwilling I am to make necessary changes to a facility to welcome in. Uh, I remember even, and this is by way of confession, um, when we bought our building in St. Louis, uh, it was an older building. And I remember being grateful that we weren't required to make some of the ADA changes because we were grandfathered in. Uh, It would have been of great cost to the church, but I was reading that and thinking, I probably need to repent of that uh, because of, you know, who maybe was kept out on behalf of that and what is it that, that my heart was saying to me? We have an opportunity here, folks, is I think one of the things that we're seeing. When we see the love of these folks, the love of these uh, men, these friends, to bring their friend to Jesus, part of what we ask ourselves is do we have that same love for others? Uh, not just those represented by the flags, but those that are right here in our community uh, that that need to be invited in and welcomed. And what's interesting here is that Jesus recognizes this as faith. Verse 20, Jesus saw their faith. Now, I don't know what you think about faith or how you interpreted the first part of this verse. Oftentimes, when we think about faith, we think about faith in terms of a a what we believe, something that happens intellectually. I, I have a faith. Uh, but Jesus says he sees their faith. Now, does this mean that he was looking into their hearts uh, like he's looking into the hearts of the Pharisees later on? I don't think so. I think what Jesus is saying here is that when you love somebody in such a way and you believe that somebody has the ability to heal them, faith is putting that into action. It's what James says, faith without works is dead. And so we take what we believe and we act on it, we put it into action, and that, the belief and the behavior together are what we call faith. Now, that's something to think about. We oftentimes see some of those inconsistencies in my life. Let me just give you an example. If I believe that God set aside one day out of seven for a rest day, a Sabbath, uh, unto the Lord for worship and rest and that kind of thing, and then I proceed, if I say I believe that, and then I proceed to work Seven days out of seven, because you know, I need to make sure that I keep my job, I need to make sure all of these different things. Then there's a disconnect between what I say I believe and how I act. Uh, So, do I really believe this? Do I really have faith that what God is saying is true? Because if I really believe that then I'll act in a different way. And if I'm acting in this way, maybe I secretly believe that I need to work seven days out of seven and that money is the thing that is going to get me through and so on and so forth. You see, there's that relationship between belief and behavior that Jesus emphasizes, and he calls it faith in verse 20. And this is all very important because Jesus is uh, on a mission to meet this person. And, and what is so surprising, when he sees their faith, and I do think that he is including the faith of the paralytic. I mean, we're not told, did the paralytic want to come? Was he dragged kicking and screaming, so to speak? Or uh, did, did he want to come? Jesus, it says he, he saw their faith. It could be just the friends, but it seems from context that he's including all of their faith. Uh, When Jesus sees their faith, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I don't know exactly what the man thought or what the friends thought when this happened because it was not exactly what they were looking for. Uh, They were looking for healing. They were looking for verse 24 and 25, and instead they got verses 20 to 24. Uh, they, They were looking for something different. Uh, but Jesus here is concerned not just with physical healing, but he's concerned with righteousness. He's concerned with uh, the state of this man's heart before God. Uh, he's concerned with the core of the issue, not just the symptom of The issue. And this is one of the things that then is highlighted for us in this passage is that when Jesus came in order to enact renewal into this world, uh, he starts not just with the symptoms, Uh, he doesn't work, so to speak, from the outside in. But he starts at the very core of the issue. And that is the alienation that we experience between uh, humankind and God. That is the core of the issue. And that is what Jesus came to address. So they brought him thinking that he needed physical healing. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven because we have to start there. And this is always the way God thinks about things, even with the Israelites, uh, places in the prophets, like in Jeremiah chapter 30, uh, God says, you you come to me uh, with your pain, your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous, there's no one to uphold your cause, there's no medicine for your wound, there's no healing for you. Why? Because your guilt is great. And your sins are flagrant. Until we deal with the core of who we are in relationship with God, it doesn't matter what's on the outside. We can have all of the the external healing that we want, but it's not going to matter until the core issue is dealt with. And this is why Jesus recognizes that this is the harder thing. You, you note here in the passage, he says your sins are forgiven. And the people there, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders who are pretty skeptical about Jesus, who Jesus was, they're thinking, well, anybody can say that because we can't actually see that. Now they knew that he was making a claim for deity with that, but they didn't put a lot of stock into it. Jesus perceives their thoughts, and he says, that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He takes a messianic title for himself, Son of Man, from Daniel. Uh, That you may know, that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your bed and walk. So, for Jesus, this is the easier thing. Uh, it's easier for him to heal this man. I mean, this is finger work for Jesus who flung the stars into the sky and made the intricacies of our, of our body. This is easy work for Jesus. Uh, but the hard work is the righteousness because he knew that it would cost him his life. He knew that he would have to go to the cross. He knew that he would have to become sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And and what we see here in this passage, what Jesus highlights for us, is exactly the story of redemptive history that the cross comes before the resurrection. That Jesus has to go and he has to deal with the very wrath of God poured out against sin. The harder work by far. And after that, he rises with healing in his wings. And we begin to see the rewebbing of shalom. Of peace, of putting back together the creation as it was meant to be, the first fruits of which are Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. And here we get an inbreaking of that with his ability to heal this, uh, this one who was previously disabled. Right, this is the beauty of the story, is that Jesus has come to deal with what is really separating us from God. And in doing that, He is going to give us all things. Now, here's the question. Have you heard that for yourself? I mean, we all have pain. We we are all Demi Lovato uh, to a certain degree. Is anyone out there listening? The answer is yes. And Jesus is saying, come to me and I will forgive your sins. Have you you heard that in a way that your heart has surrendered? Because that will then place all of the other things that you think you need and that you're clinging to, that maybe even pushing in as priorities, that will help to put them in their proper perspective. But there is a great promise here, and I don't want you to miss the shalom. Uh, You know, this man is really healed. Jesus does rise with healing in his wings. The resurrection follows the cross, and all things are are made new. And there is tremendous, tremendous hope for us in that. Now, does that mean that it all happens in the here and now like it happened for this man? Well, I, I think you know that it doesn't. I mean, we have folks... I think of Johnny Erickson Tata, who's been our teacher in in so many ways, Uh, as we think about disability and suffering and hope in the world, uh, you know, relationship with the Lord. As a young woman, she became a quadriplegic. She sought physical healing in so many ways. Uh, she, she came to, to Luke 5, this passage, right here, Heal, the healing of the paralytic. But she said, you know, for the longest time, I only read verses 18 to 20 and then 24 to 26. She skipped the whole middle part. Uh, her change, the way that she saw the world uh, happened when she reckoned with the core of what Jesus came to do. She said, I collapsed in tears when I began to glimpse how heinous my sin was. Physical healing paled in comparison to the unthinkable abuse that my transgressions heaped on the Lord. It's very provocative language there. So for the last 50 years, she says in my wheelchair, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self, rising with Jesus, dying to self, Rising with Jesus, her emphasis. My goal is to mortify my fleshly desires so that I might find myself in Christ. God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart, things from which I need to be healed. So she's still in the chair, but she recognizes her resurrection with Christ daily. She recognizes the healing that he is bringing her from the inside out. And he reco- she recognizes the shalom that belongs to her, not merely an external healing, but like I said, that healing that comes from the inside out. For this man, uh, the result is joy. Uh, we see that verses 25, 26, uh, as he takes up his mat. I, I love that picture, you know, the mat on which he was carried in. Uh, the mat that uh, sort of signified his baggage for all those years. He couldn't go anywhere without it. Uh, and he is transformed in a way that he picks it up and he carries that mat home. Such is the reversal when we, when we come to know Jesus. And, and I wonder, brother or sister, do you, do you believe that? You know, whether it's your depression or whether it's your addiction or whether it is uh, your, your physical health, we, we come born by these things. You know, these things mark us, they, they characterize us so much. But what Jesus promises in the encounter with Him is that He will transform those things. And we will carry them, and they will become a testimony not to our disability, but to the transformation that that Jesus has brought in my life. Look, I came in on this mat, but I'm going out carrying the mat. I came in brought low by my depression, but I have seen that God transforms me, and even though I may still struggle with depression, it doesn't own me. My Savior owns my depression. My Savior owns my addiction. And even though I still struggle with it, it does not own me. It does not define me. I am defined by this touch of Jesus who has come to deal with my deepest core. And so we go out and we carry with us the very things that mark us uh, as desperate, as destitute, This is the good news of the gospel. And note, the crowds pick up on this. They say, yes, this one does have authority. They are amazed at his teaching. And this is part of the testimony of Jesus. You know, as he goes the three years of his public ministry, uh, people continue to see God is truly working in this one. Uh, Now, they're struggling. Can we really believe that he is who he says? I mean, he essentially claimed to be God. I didn't see anybody come and confess their sins to him in this moment. And part of that is the process. I mean, we need to see deeper into who Jesus is. And some of you even today have come saying, how can Jesus fix my external situation? I've got so much junk in my life. I'm dealing with this relational breakdown. I'm dealing with this physical thing. I'm dealing with this, that, and the other thing. Can Jesus fix my pain? Can Jesus take it away? The answer is yes. But Jesus wants to do even more than that. He wants to address the root of your pain. And so part of the exhortation is don't just be amazed at Jesus. Will you fall at his feet? Will you recognize him as king? Will you recognize him as the one who has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found? You know, we we see this in in all sorts of literature. Uh, Some of you are familiar with Tolkien and, you know, his stories when the king comes. You know, the kingdom is renewed, virtues of truth and justice, all of these things once again stand forth to us. I recently uh, read a novel that uh, has the same thing, a, a slave. His name is Stephen Black. It's not his true name. It's just what he's called. Uh, And and he is under a terrible, terrible enchantment. And uh, it's not until uh, he is given power to defeat the enchantment uh, that we recognize that Stephen is actually a king. And when he comes back to the castle, the castle which was called Lost Hope, which had held him in captivity for all these years, he is now recognized as the true king of the castle. And I love the way that Susanna Clark, the author of the story, puts this here. He, he says, I don't understand. Lost Hope was, was a great mansion, and it was filled with, with terrible things, but, but now I'm coming to this fresh, new world. What, what is this place? And he has answered, he said, this is the world beneath the hill. Lost hope has changed. The old king is dead. You, the new king, approaches. And at your approach, the world sheds its sorrow. The sins of the old king dissolve like morning mist. The world assumes the character of the new king. It's his virtues that fill up the wood and the world. As we come to this passage, we meet the King, the one who has been granted all authority at whose name every knee shall bow. And it's His virtues, love, faith, righteousness, peace, shalom, joy. These are the virtues that fill up the world. After all, as Paul said in Romans 14, 17, He said, The kingdom of God does not come with eating and drinking, but the kingdom of God comes with righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a world in which you reign as king. Father, sometimes that is hard for us to believe because we see and we experience so much of the residual pain that exists. Father, we pray that you would lift our eyes today so that we may see uh, the, the King as he really is, that we may see this one whose virtues fill this world. And we pray that you would loose our tongues in order uh, to give you praise. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.